So you have to go and see farmers that are doing it and learn from their experiences and then ask yourself, well, what this farmer is doing, would that work on my farm or not? And, and until you decide it will work, there's no point in even trying it. Hello and welcome along to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm John O'Frew, and I'm excited to be here with you as we dive into exploring how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative, and enjoyable farming systems. Alright, today we have Siobhan Griffin, who is a sheep farmer down in Milton, and a grazing coach. Siobhan also spent a lot of her career as a dairy farmer in the United States. Welcome, Siobhan. Good morning, Jano. Can you give us a run through of of your history, your background? Uh, Sure. Um, I've been in New Zealand for four years now, and I sold my dairy farm in 2016, the beginning of 2016, because I wanted to spend this next half of my life helping regenerative farmers stay on the land because I I think that's how I could make the biggest impact using what I learned on my farm and and just the mind-blowing outcomes that we got. I think if more farmers learn about that, they can really heal the world. And I just want a better world for my grandkids. So that's what I've set about to do. You know, we, I was dairy farming for 25 years in New York State, about four hours away from New York City. And uh, we, we started out as organic. We got certified in 1997 after renting a couple of farms for several years. So I got to see, you know, the farming on the conventional side, then the farming on the organic side, and then we switched to the regenerative in 2008. And uh, we just saw, you know, a massive difference in our outcomes. You know, we saw more wildlife, the animals got healthier. Uh, The reason we started it, the regenerative is really to make our cheese taste better. We had started to make a farmstead cheese because we wanted to, um, you know, cushion ourselves from the risks of price fluctuations. That's what got us into the mob grazing, which we called it at the time, where instead of using utilization to get quality, we were using non-selective trampling to create quality because that allows a lot of diversity to come into the pastures. And we thought that would make the meat and cheese taste better. And it really did. Uh, You know, we had been grass fed for a decade, decade or two by then but we didn't realize how good our meat and milk could actually taste. So that was really mind blowing. For instance, you know, we, all of a sudden we started to see Timothy and red clover come into the pastures. And as you know, Timothy is, you know, probably one of the highest quality forage plants, forage grasses there are, all sorts of other plants. And then next thing, all sorts of other birds. And uh, in 2016, a bird expert came from Cornell and identified 86 different species of birds. And I didn't even know there were that many in New York. And uh, the interesting thing is we saw a huge increase in the ground nesting birds. You've heard me talk about this. And um, I always point that out to New Zealand farmers because 
New Zealand used to be chock-a-block full of birds and a lot of them were nesting on the ground. And it turns out it's, it's really not the predators that limit the ground nesting bird populations, it's habitat. Because we've got, you know, stoats and minks and fox and snakes, skunks and possums, coyotes, all sorts of predators that will eat a bird leg if they bird egg if they find it laying around. But we saw a massive increase in the bird populations. So by that point, my farm was teaching me so many things about what I now call is the unlimited grasslands that used to exist back in Eurasia um, before humans started reducing the numbers of animals and kind of hunting out wildlife. And of course, a lot of plants are associated with certain types of wildlife and then they go away too if the um, animals they're in symbiotic relationship with disappear. So we've really limited the grasslands around the world way more than we know. So right now I'm teaching farmers to you know, use a grazing plan that's developed by Alan Savory to bring more diversity into their pastures, but also to increase their biology on their farm. In other words, increase their net primary production. Because A, if you grow more grass, you can make more money if you're smart about it. But B, I think one of the things that's damaged the climate today is we've reduced biology across the earth and biology contains carbon. So as we reduce the amount of carbon we have in the biology on land, so not just animals and plants, but also the biology underground, you know, all the root mass, for instance, a C3 grassland has, um, you know, two thirds of its biology underground that we don't even see. And as these grasslands have been diminished over time, you know, we turn the Sahara into deserts, many other areas into deserts, all that biology and carbon went up into the air. The good story is, you know, it's not a doom and gloom story. The good story is pastoral farmers can restore so much of that carbon. And the big surprise on our farm, you know, when we were managing for perennial ryegrass and white clover for, you know, 10 or 15 years before the regenerative, we never increased our soil organic matter. And people are, are finding that in New Zealand, you know, in on New Zealand farmland, the soil carbon isn't going up. But once we started the regenerative and we got more plants, some of them had deeper roots, all of a sudden our soil organic matter increased a half a percent per year. And I tell people here, this, this could be your marketing story of the century because we actually need more cows, not fewer, and more sheep, not fewer, to restore the biology and the life. Because if farmers in New Zealand could increase their soil carbon just half as much as I did, you would offset the entire country's greenhouse gas emissions, including methane. So we had, we had pretty good soil organic matter in our part of New York because we were a grass-based dairy. You know, we started at 6% soil organic matter and we ended up at 11% in 10 years. For those listeners that perhaps aren't aware of the significance of soil organic matter or soil carbon, would you mind Siobhan just touching on why that is important? Well, the first thing is the practical reason. So 
you know, we started out <laughs> doing everything the Kiwi way. You know, I used to read articles in the Gray's Magazine, which is an American publication. And I used to love the articles that, you know, Dylan Ditchfield wrote. He's a farmer down here in Southland, just because I was trying to do everything like the Kiwis did. We were using LIC genetics since 1996, you know, Gallagher everything, um, perennial ryegrass and white clover in that yellow bag, you know, everything <laughs> that pe people were doing here, we were trying to copy because we thought that this grass-based system was far superior to the American confinement system or the European confinement system. And it is, your heads and shoulders above those systems. But we were kind of disappointed that the carbon, soil carbon didn't go up in that system. And I think the roots were limiting. They just didn't go deep enough. And the other thing is uh, when you manage ryegrass for, uh, you know, by using utilization um, to manage quality, you really don't feed the soil as much either. So once we started to feed the soil, you know, that carbon went up. But the amazing thing was our pastures didn't turn brown in the summer like they used to. You know, the perennial ryegrass can't handle, you know, the American continental climate where we get dry in the summer. So we'd normally have a month or two of just brown grass and we'd have to feed out. But the cool thing, once I had all this diversity coming along, either from planting a diverse perennial pasture or from just lifting my um, grazing height and residual height a little bit every year, just that lift brought in this diversity. Then we had deep rooted plants like your red clover and dandelion, one of my favorites with a deep tap root. All of a sudden, we'd go through these hot dry summers with green pastures and we didn't have to feed out. So we were saving about $80,000 US uh, per 100 cows on our feed costs because we just grew more grass in the summertime. So by building that carbon sponge, you've got the ability to hold water. I think, I think the number is um, for every 1% increase in soil organic matter, you can hold 180,000 more liters of water. Have you heard that one? Mm. Um, but practically on our farm, what it meant was green pasture in the summer, which was huge because our two months of summer out of our six month growing season, you know, is one third of our whole growing season. <laughs> so that's how we, we made a lot more money. And was that confronting? Because I was a dairy farmer for nearly 15 years and I definitely lived and breathed utilization and quality. I'm doing the fingers brackets thing there. For me, I had it really honed into me that if I didn't get that, you know, 1500 residual, then that was waste and it was going to lose quality. And even I'd often come in and if I didn't, if I couldn't get it low enough with the cows, make sure I top it at certain times of the year to prevent, you know, wastage. Yes. Uh, what was it like for you making that change? Well, I had made life difficult for myself by planting perennial ryegrass everywhere because it's actually really hard to manage in a regenerative system. I think how New Zealanders were taught to manage ryegrass is the proper way to do it. The only problem with that is the only other plants that can handle that type of management are poor quality. So that's, you'll see more brown top and dog's tail and those kind of things inching into the pasture because when uh, perennial ryegrass um, 
has two leaves and isn't really quite fully recovered, Brown Top has five leaves and it's happy as Larry. And that's why we had to regress our paddocks every 10 years or so because, you know, these weedier, uh, poor quality species would inch in there. But the difference then with the regenerative is we were using the non-selective trampling to get quality. So instead of favoring poor quality plants, there was an, a level playing field for all the plants. And that's how we started to see more diversity just come into the pastures. Um, but also it feeds the soil. And when you feed the soil, um, you know, that soil biology is your engine room and you can grow more grass per unit of input on your farm. What you're saying in a way is that we're just, our management is really just about managing perennial ryegrass. Yes. So by managing for that one species, you lose out on, you know, many layers and layers of, um, you know, solar harvesting ability, but also you have to regrass. So once I switched my management, my pastures actually got better instead of getting worse over time. And so I ended up, you know, selling my plows, discs and cedar and drill because after about five years, you know, I was plowing under paddocks that, you know, were better than anything I could buy in a bag. So that was over in uh, New York. And, you know, I'm sure there'll be people listening that, uh, thinking, well, you know, that was New York. This is New Zealand. Uh, it's a completely different place. It, you know, what what would you say to that, Siobhan? Is it is is there validity in that? Um, for sure. <laughs> but let let me tell you the story. So I've been answering this question for four years now um, in New Zealand because when I first came, and people said, "Oh, it won't work here," and I was like, "Wow." That's funny because all the, you know, the plants that we ended up having in our pasture from the different management, I can see them all in your verge. You know, there's Timothy in there, there's the lotus, um, the coxfoot. And I was like, well, I can't imagine why it wouldn't work here. So I did the research and it turns out all of those plants, including the ryegrass and the white clover, none of them are native to New York State and Vermont, which are the states I was farming in. They're all from Eurasia. And so are the animals that we're farming. <clears throat> you know, the, the deer, the sheep, and the cattle, none of them are native to New York or to New Zealand. So we've literally imported what I think is just a small piece of the puzzle of what used to be, you know, a very complex um, Eura Eurasian grassland. So we've brought over these couple of little pieces of them. <laughs> So in New Zealand and at the time in uh, America as well, we just had basically your two species of grass and your two species of animals. And we're trying to work with that. But it turns out if we amplify the diversity, it increases your primary production. And, and primary production is the ability of, you know, your, your plants to harvest solar energy and turn it into a carbohydrate that you can make money out of, you know, by feeding it to animals. But uh, I think the take home message for New Zealand farmers is New Zealand farmers can be the climate heroes of the world because, you know, this grassland I grew on my farm taught me that 
the only way we can draw down carbon on a landscape scale and store it long-term in the soil is by mimicking nature with our livestock. You know, we've gotten rid of most of the wild herds, probably 95% of the great wild herds that used to build up soils in Eurasia and America really, really deep, um, you know, up to six meters deep of, you know, black topsoil. So when, when that was all plowed up, all that carbon went into the air, but farmers can reverse that. So plantation pine, for instance, sequesters no carbon long-term, whereas in a grassland setting, using this holistic plan grazing, farmers can get deep carbon down into the soil where it'll, it'll remain there um, and it's less likely to oxidize into the air or be um, you know, digested by microbes. And plantation pine doesn't do that. It, it inhales carbon for 30 years and then it exhales most of that out upon harvest and starts to um, all the wood starts to uh, oxidize into the air, you know, all the tops of the trees and the roots and even the logs you harvest, if they go into cardboard or toilet paper or pallets, you know, they'll only last 10 years and they're, they're back in the air too. Whereas farmers in New Zealand, pastoral farmers can be constantly pumping carbon into their soils um, and it can stay there for thousands of years if they don't plow it up. I heard an interesting stat, Siobhan, um, recently about our soil exports in New Zealand. 190 million tonnes annually is, is the stat yes. that I was told. Yeah. And um, we've all seen the picture of, you know, forestry post-harvest and, you know, just the, the sheer destruction. And we're all told, you know, plant trees is going to help save the planet. And the other thing about that is we're told that animals, are, especially cattle, like there's this thing that, that it's bad, that we need to destock and we need to lower our animal impact. But what I'm hearing from you is quite contrary to that. Yes, because if you look back throughout history and you look at <clears throat> ice core data, um, whenever there was like a large scale removable, removal of herbivores from the landscape. There was a burst of CO2 that went into the air and um, following the CO2 rise was um, temperature rise and sea level rise. And uh, you know, I've seen a cl clean pattern of that. For instance, 15,000 years ago, you know, humans made it to North America and you know they they decimated the megafauna there. You know there were these many species of giant bison and fourteen species of antelopes and um, you know all mammoths, all these things roaming around on a very highly productive grassland. And um, when all the mega mega herbivores went extinct and some of the medium sized ones too, it made the grassland less productive as well. So not only did the car carbon that was in the animals end up in the air, but the carbon that was in the plants that they were keeping healthy went up into the air. And we saw a big jump in um, CO2 and also sea level rise at the time. So throughout history, every time we remove animals <clears throat> and remove the biology on earth, <clears throat> excuse me, um, we, we see sea level rise basically. So now we've got very few animals left. In, in fact, we're turning 
our blue-green marble into a brown marble. And that is the problem with the planet. Um, we have less life. We've got less wildlife. And we're basically <laughs> just down to livestock to use as a tool to build this carbon sponge back up. So it's all about restoring the green, turning the brown into green again. And pastoral farmers, they have the most agency of any people in the world to do this because they can restore their grassland, bring in diversity or add diversity in both animals and plants and get that green back because that green is made up of carbon. And if you grow more green, it's pulling carbon out of the air through photosynthesis, which is magic. <laughs> and um, keep, keeping the carbon down in the biosphere. So uh, the, the climate scientists, unfortunately, like the IPCC, um, they've jumped onto this um, plantation pine solution. And again, it breathes the carbon in for 30 years and then spews it back out. It's not a long-term solution. Only sequestering carbon deep in that carbon sponge can ever heal the climate because we don't need to um, reduce our emissions because the carbon's already in the air. We need to draw the carbon that's excess carbon that's in the air down. And um, you know, this grassland ecosystem is the best you know, the best way to do it because, um, you know, two thirds of the biomass in the C3 grassland is underground. It also keeps it safe from forest fires. But, you know, New Zealanders, surely they can see the damage the forestry does to the soil and it makes no sense to, um, uh, you know, cause that destruction on the land. And studies here in New Zealand have found when they take pasture out of farming and put it into pine, they, they lose soil carbon as well. And I don't, I don't think the IPC does those measurements. But farmers in New Zealand need to get their mana back. You know, they need to, you know, we've always known that there's nothing wrong with our cows and our sheep because God made them. They are not the cause of climate change. It's how we've been managing them. And the European and American models where they put these animals on confinement you know, surely methane is an issue, but when Walter Yenna was here, that brilliant soil biologist, he taught us that in a healthy grassland system, all the methane and more from these animals and their, and their burps are mitigated by the grassland. And when the studies that the IPCC uses in their methane calculations, those studies were done in a lab where they stuck a ruminant in a lab she wasn't on a grassland. It, it makes no sense. So again, pastoral farmers are gonna be the climate heroes, but when you look at reductionist science, it's steering New Zealand in the wrong direction. Like when we remove the life, it changes the dialogue. Yes, yeah. It's all about restoring life and turning that, you know, this blue-green marble that's turning brown back into a blue-green one. And, and one thing I see is, uh, you know, this holistically planned grazing uh, style of grassland management can be used not only just to sequester heaps of carbon on um, pastoral farms, but also arable farmers can rotate, um, 
you know, three or four years of pasture into their systems where their carbon is going to be built up and the soil health built up in that time and then go back to their arable farming. Um, so uh, the other thing, you know, the important thing is we need to get this story out to the consumers because they're all going vegetarian. And if we don't have a market for our our sheep products and, and our beef products and our milk products, the whole world's in deep doo-doo because that means these animals come off the land and then the land is gonna degrade. Uh, on American farmland, you know, where all the products for fake meat and milk are grown, their solar organic matter is only 2%. So surely New Zealand wouldn't wanna go in that direction because you know, your solar organic matter is probably five times that. So going in that direction, you would go backwards. What would you say, Siobhan, to the comment that New Zealand soils are already saturated with carbon and that we're already, you know, doing things uh, regeneratively, so to speak? Um, so, yeah, and, and I think that belief, there's, of course, there's no evidence of that. I don't, I've never seen a scientific study that tried to measure how much carbon you could put into the soil. Who has done that? But um, uh, there was a study, um, uh, there was a study done in New Zealand and they found that the, uh, you know, soil carbon isn't increasing on farmland in New Zealand and it's because of the management that's present. And I think that has developed the myth that, you know, you get to wherever you are and it doesn't go up. But, um, you know, on our farm in New York, our soil organic matter was 6%. And a lot of farms here, that's about where a lot of farms here are. But we raised it to 11% and it's still going up. So, and when settlers came to Australia, some soils in Australia had 30% soil organic matter. And we're talking Australia. So, you know, we don't know where the upper limit is. But I think that myth comes from the fact that how, how we're farming now on our grass-based systems really aren't increasing carbon. So if you change the management, I'm sure you can increase carbon, but also you can put carbon down deeper. If we can get that carbon sponge, not only to go deeper, but also build our topsoil up. You know, if you have more topsoil on your farm, it's, it's like increasing your effective hectares. Growing area vertically. Yeah. You know, because you increase your ability to um, uh, grow grass. 2016, you sold up and you made a just a little move to New Zealand. Um, what's been some of the learnings you've had coming to New Zealand? What are the, what are some of the the in your travels? What have been some of the, I guess, limitations you're observing in New Zealand and on the other side of that, what are the opportunities that you see as the most obvious ones? Well, the biggest problem I see in New Zealand is that the, um, the general population doesn't appreciate their farmers here. So farmers in New Zealand and all around the world, you know, have been giving society exactly what they asked for, which is cheap food. And now we know that there's unintended consequences of that cheap food, but it's still, everybody wants cheap food. 
you don't want to go to the shop and pay twice as much. <laughs> so, but now it's the farmers that are being kicked to the curb here in New Zealand because of the poor outcomes. And, you know, I see the outcomes. I, you know, I like to surf and sometimes, you know, especially up in Canterbury um, and, you know, parts of the North Island, I've seen waves that are brown with poo. Um, you know, the outcomes are not good but the outcomes could be a hundred times better. Really this regenerative farming would tick all the boxes and it's because New Zealand farmers, I think are the best farmers in the world. You've got incredible farming skills, uh, pastoral farming skills and um, you know, all the, all the Kiwi farming culture, you know, you've got, you've got, everyone knows how to work dogs, um, muster animals, uh, your infrastructure is excellent for the landscape. So, you know, such better farmers than probably we have in America because you're also getting better outcomes. Like I said, in America, our soil organic matter is so low, even though we started with six meters of prairie topsoil <laughs> and now we're down to 2% soil organic matter. So the farmers here are exceptionally, exceptionally good farmers. And it blows my mind, you know, when I travel all around consulting, how good the farmers are here. So you have better agency than people anywhere in the world to really excel at this carbon farming. For instance, Mark Anderson, he's seeing um, twice as much soil organic matter improvement on his farm than I got, which I had predicted because you have a 12 month growing season here. We only had a six month growing season. So to me, farmers here, um, yeah, they're getting vilified for really giving society what they wanted, but it doesn't take much of a tweak in management to have the complete opposite outcome. So on our farm, we were seeing, you know, more frequent droughts and floods, but when we got those big floods, our, our farmland just sucked up all that water like a sponge and the water leaving our farm was crystal clear. So by using, you know, the, the um, you know, mob grazing skills, farmers can actually make more money, but also tick all the boxes that people are kicking you to the curb for. So you can clean up your runoff um, over time as you learn to fertilize your soil with something you've grown from the sun and get, you know, residual trample down to feed worms that feed it to all that soil biology. Um, as that starts cranking up, you can reduce your nitrogen use and nitrous oxide is um, three times, 300 times more powerful a greenhouse gas than CO2. So there's so many ways that this regenerative grazing can tick all the boxes that we need to tick to get our planet to be green and blue. And also I think if New Zealand can market that really green story, people can eat your protein grown in New Zealand instead of eating so much fish. And then we can take the pressure off our oceans and let the ocean rebound because the, the life in the ocean has also been reduced you know, in a huge way. Uh, and that needs to rebound too, to be healthy. So this is what the future I see is people eating regeneratively grown meat and milk products and also wearing regeneratively grown wool uh, to save the world. And this is the story we have to get out there. 
and quit kicking our farmers to the curb. And to do this, we need farmers on the land with all the um, livestock management skills that Kiwi farmers have. So you're in an incredibly great position to really excel at this. And it's really, really easy to do. You don't have to spend any money. You just have to change your management. It's not the cow, it's the how. Exactly. But, <laughs> but the marketing story is critical because my sister went into a grocery store in, in the States two months ago. And she said there was, she called me up in a panic for me. She said, there's 10 different types of fake meat on the shelf now. And we saw that happen with dairy in the States where the fake milk took over. And it really reduced the market for both conventional and organic dairy farmers in the States. So this is a big deal. Um, it's so important to create this story that's authentic, um, build the carbon sponge that's gonna heal the climate so that more people don't go vegetarian. What is for you the definition of mob grazing? And what are some easy practical things that you can offer for farmers to consider applying to pique their curiosity and see some results? Mm. So I, I guess we approached it from two ways. We started with the holistic plan grazing and all that does is it, it allows you to provide the um, optimal recovery for the kind of pasture plants that you want to have. Um, so if, for instance, you wanted more diversity, you might need some longer recoveries, especially in the summer to allow, uh, you know, what I think are the most highly palatable plants that have the most energy, for instance, Timothy, um, red clover. A lot of farmers in the States were doing that, especially, you know, ranchers, sheep and beef people. And they really weren't generating the quality that you would need for dairy farming. So it wasn't until Ian Mitchell Innes came to you know, our part of um, the Eastern US and started working with organic dairy farmers that were moving in that holistic direction. And, and he taught us all about managing the quality. And the secret to that is mobbing up your mobs. And you know, for, for dairy farms, it's easy. On my farm, all we did was split the day paddock in half with a single wire and we split the night paddock in half and when the people who, you know, milk the cows were done washing down the sheds, they ride out and um, lock the cows in and they just roll up that reel when they were out there, it took 10 minutes. So we had quadrupled <clears throat> our animal density. Uh, and this allowed us to um, lift our residual very slowly over five years. So we lifted our residual about five centimeters per year over five years. And that allowed lots and lots of diversity to come in. Uh, but we needed that higher density to trample down the, the higher lignin part of the grasses so that they would come up fresh and green. So Ian Michelinus was huge in teaching us how to grow more grass. And really you wanna increase your stocking rate, not reduce your stocking rate because if you're regenerating your grassland and building topsoil, you'll be able to harvest more solar energy because you're growing more grass and you should be able to have more livestock, especially on sheep and beef farms. 
in our case, like most dairy farmers, we were already overstocked. So what we did was just reduced our purchase feed. And that's how we, we just saved money instead of milking more cows. But on sheep and beef farms, I, I like to see them increase their stocking rate. And that's going to be a good measurement if you're regenerative or not. There's a perception that we need less cattle or less animals. And people use you know stock units per hectare. And uh, there's also some pressure from regulations and some you know top-down enterprises I guess you could say to have almost limitations on uh, stock units per hectare how do we how do we communicate this to those I guess you could say higher powers that actually it's not something that's bad uh, is it just about getting more farmers enrolled in that possibility or what what do you think we can do to so in New Zealand, we can have case studies and you know, there's a lot of farmers doing this regenerative grazing and um, they're already measuring their soil carbon, taking baseline soil carbon and we'll see where it goes because that's gonna write your story. So they've done a case study on white oak pastures, which is an American um, farm that's been using holistic management for <clears throat> a long time. And they're producing a net negative carbon beef, you know, all the carbon they're sequestrating in their soil is offsetting all their methane production. So that's the story that we need to get out there is um, you need to look at the big picture. Uh, we, we probably don't need less animals. We probably need more animals because people don't understand we're, we're working with a very thin uh, soil profile and, you know, very thin um, grassland here in New Zealand. And as we build that up thicker, we'll be able to handle more animals and we'll actually need them to, to um, you know, use their superpower of animal impact to, you know, fertilize the soil naturally. But, you know, the scientists from Europe have, again, they measured the methane coming from these animals in a lab and they don't understand how the grassland system works. And I do recommend people go look on YouTube at Walter Yenna's work, which explains how this methane in a grassland setting is completely mitigated. So as more case studies come out and we get the results, then we have to market that story. Forget the government because, you know, it, it's your consumers that are in the important thing, because if they stop eating, you know, meat products and milk products, well, then there's no point in farming any animals if no one's going to eat the products from them. I, I, I guess that's where we have to go is, is just get the results and get it out there. But, um, you know, regenerative farms in the States are already showing that they can be net negative in far as carbon in producing their protein. I'm always so excited and uplifted and, and, and motivated hearing you speak, Siobhan. But what I was wondering was, we've talked a bit about dairying. What, what about the sheep guys? You're down there in Milton on a sheep farm, uh, mm. you and Rick. What are, some, what are some observations you're making with the, with the sheep? And I do think the consumers are, are starting to come around to the idea that fiber grown on sheep is, you know, super, super regenerative. I, I love sheep. I, I used to love cows, but now I think I love sheep even more. 
because they're just such intelligent mothers. I, I do think, you know, when we talk about diversity in farming, that's super important. And uh, I like the idea of, you know, having sheep, cattle, deer, whatever you can. I think the more diverse your farm is, the better. But sheep surely have to be, you know, the, the most eco-friendly way to raise meat, I, I believe. And they can be easily part of these systems. But again, we've been managing sheep, you know, just how our, you know, forefathers from Europe did. You know, my family is Irish. And you go back to Ireland and England and, um, you know, it's all short pastures because it's easy to manage sheep that way. So it is a lot harder to create quality for sheep, you know, because of how they've kind of evolved in our pastoral systems. And uh, we take a lot of compromises uh, as we're managing the sheep regeneratively on our trial in Milton. So we know that perennial ryegrass, the optimal recovery might be the three leaf stage, but when we have lambs about, whether lambs at foot or you know, after weaning mobs of just lambs, we're targeting the two leaf stage during those times because we know we, we need to have a compromise to get the um, growth, fast growth, but then hopefully, you know, it would be ideal if we could manage to then in the summertime, get the lambs off and then later in the summer, achieve a longer recovery for that ryegrass to at least keep the ryegrass persisting so that dog's tail and brown top don't slip into the equation. Because remember when perennial ryegrass is at the one or two leaf stage, brown top has five leaves. So that's how we're kind of looking at sheep and managing it. But um, I love sheep and I love wool. And, and um, you know, my partner Rick through the uh, Ag Match and the Ag Wool program, he's really trying to um, create a market for this regeneratively grown wool, which is huge. It's what the world needs. Instead of dumping all this plastic into the ocean, we could create completely compostable wool products and just close the loop. He's doing more than trying, Siobhan. I can assure you that yesterday, it seems to be everywhere I go, I'm seeing those jerseys. Oh, well done. So yeah, it's becoming, uh, you know, a uniform for New Zealand farmers, which is great. So yeah, yeah again, it's a New Zealand grown wool. It's what the world needs more of. So Siobhan, we've talked a bit about pine plantations and they're, you know, quite detrimental, but what are some of the positive parts that, I mean, trees are great. We, we love trees. Um, how do we fit trees into our, into our systems? And, and I love trees too. And that's the other thing that Walter Yenna taught us is how important they are for actually creating rain. You know, they've got, they release these magical bacteria from their stomata that literally become the nucleus for raindrops. And tree, trees are hugely important. Um, the only thing I was knocking is the plantation pine, which is actually destructive. The amazing thing about New Zealand is you can grow almost any kind of tree here. You can grow palm trees, giant sequoias, all your beautiful native rimu, just incredible forestry can be grown here. But I think a better model would be diverse forest, either um, your diverse native forest, but or your diverse native forest mixed with exotics. I'll give you an example. In New York State, it became illegal after the Dust Bowl for farmers to get up on steep hills and cultivate them. So they've actually grown up to native forest. 
but we use it as a, as a big resource. So forestry is a $10 billion business in New York state, and we're only the size of the South Island or so, but the forests are hardly ever clear cut like they do here. So we, we do what's called selective harvest where um, you go in and if a, if a tree has a beautiful couple of veneer logs or it's ready to harvest, those will be pulled out, but they'll leave most of the forest intact to continue regrowing. It's the, sa it's the same idea of a perennial pasture, uh, but in a forest sense. So whereas your plantation pine is more like an annual crop. <laughs> so just like with the grasslands, this perennial forest isn't destructive. Um, and it also doesn't destroy the habitat for all the animals that live in there, you know, because we've got, you know, lots of deer and possums and squirrels and raccoons and all those things in there that need a home. So if we clear cut, cut it, the outcomes would be bad. But the outcomes that we're getting in, in New York is huge because the, um, the New York City Watershed Council was created 20 or 25 years ago as a way to keep farmers um, on the land. And, and it, it's a voluntary system that partners with farmers uh, to encourage them to stay in business so that their farms don't get developed into subdivisions because it's under the trees and under the farmland that water gets filtered before it goes into the New York City reservoirs. And this, this partnership system has actually saved New York City billions and billions of dollars. Uh, I think $250 million a year um, gets, gets supplied to farmers as grants to help them with practices like building laneways or, you know, concrete feed pads to improve the water quality, but also as a way to encourage farmers, especially smaller farmers, to stay on the land. These are the people that are taking care of the land and the soil, and they've, you know, been in these farming communities for, you know, generations. So it's preserving the farming culture and the farms. People in New York City love their farmers. Um, you know, I used to do farmers markets there. And unlike here, you know, when you talk to consumers, they'll be, they would thank us for producing the food we're producing. Um, they love us. But also this partnership with the New York C City um, Watershed Council is saving those ratepayers in New York City billions and billions of dollars because New York City is the largest city in the world that doesn't filter its water. And that water filtration is a requirement by the federal government, but it's been waived for New York City because the quality of the water is so good. And it's a combination of you know, these diverse forests. Um, I think 40% of farms in the Northeast, even these dairy farms are in forestry. So basically, you know, the steeper hills are covered in this you know, native diverse forest. You know, it's not just plantation pine. And every time this, those forests are harvested, every 10 years, they'll go in and pluck out these nice big trees that are ready. That's a way of sequestering carbon because if those trees just fell over on the ground, they would oxidize into the air. But instead it's high quality wood, you know, nice hardwood, maple and cherry, uh, oak, those kind of things can be made into long, long lasting items. So instead of cardboard or toilet paper, it might be an oak table that'll last 500 years if you take care of it. So 
I see that as a better model for New Zealand. And, you know, I've heard scientists here who are promoting fewer cows actually misrepresent this Watershed Council program because it's actually a voluntary partnership with farmers to keep them on the land. And they're definitely not telling them to milk fewer cows because um, they actually want farms to thrive. When you talk about filtration of water, I'm, I'm guessing you're talking about sediment. And it's a, a topic that's really quite sensitive and right in the in the headlights, so to speak, at the moment in, in New Zealand, um, particularly around nitrates. And I'm curious to know and understand where you see fertilizer fitting into our agricultural systems and what has been your sort of personal journey with regards to fertilizer reliance through your career as a farmer? Because I like to see farms be more productive, not less. I I don't think regenerative farmers as they get started should uh, reduce their fertilizer because in New Zealand, fertilizer was applied by air. Um, That's, you know, that's how mother nature did it because before people came, New Zealand was chock-a-block full of birds And some of them went out to sea during the day and went fishing. And when they came back, they'd perch in the trees and and deposit their fertilizer on the ground. So, you know, fish fertilizer has probably been used in New Zealand for thousands and thousands of years. So it's important not to give up on your fertility program until you learn how to naturally fertilize your soil by this non-selective trampling of your residual. So in the meantime, it is a great idea to reduce the chemical fertilizers and switch to ones that aren't going to kill the soil biology, because the soil biology is what's building your carbon sponge. And as far as nitrogen goes, in a cropping system or in a perennial ryegrass system, um, nitrogen leaks out the top and the bottom because the you know short-rooted grasslands can't hold in the nitrates. So they leak out the bottom and go into the waterways. Whereas if it's a thick, deep rooted pasture, it's gonna capture all that and suck it up like a sponge because we've built the sponge. But I I touched a little earlier on the nitrous oxide. Um, Most of the nitrous oxide that's gone into the atmosphere at the moment is from nitrogen fertilizers. And I mentioned earlier, nitrous oxide is 300 times a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon, but it's also lingers in the atmosphere for up to 114 years. So much, much more damaging than CO2 or methane, which only lasts for 12 years. If if we're not applying nitrogen, where does it come from? So um, a lot of this regenerative, you know, I, I tell farmers when you're trying to decide what to do, just ask yourself, well, what did nature do? You know, so she had diversity, um, but also how she built up, you know, the topsoil on those Eurasian grasslands and the American prairie was with these big, huge of animals, um, you know, with maybe, you know, tens of thousands of animals in a herd just going across the landscape. And as they went through, you know, they'd gobble up the, you know, the tops of the grasses and the shrubs and lick out the best energy. But you know, because they're moving after about two or 3,000 animals go past, everything is kind of all soiled. So they don't eat it. So they leave a lot of it and it gets trampled down to the ground by the time the herd passes through. 
And I used to think that in my organic systems, it was the animal dung was the fertilizer, but it's not. The animal dung is just the inoculant. The real fertilizer um, is, the, is the plants that were grown from photosynthesis from the sun. It's the plants that get put down on top of the soil to feed the soil biology. So then the worms will pull down that, um, you know, that green grass and, and feed it to all their friends down under the soil. So it's a different way of looking at fertility altogether. It's how mother nature did it. She, she trampled grass and grass has um, the right carbon to nitrogen ratio that the soil likes. Because if you take a pile of hay and um, a little pile of dung and you mix it together, and you let it sit in the back of your garden for a year, you come back and what do you have? You know, you, you've, if you mixed in a little soil in there, you've got um, perfect compost. So that, that's what the soil was eating, that this grass trampled down to the ground, um, inoculated with the dung, maybe a little bit of soil got kicked up and it makes basically sheet compost across your whole farm. So farmers doing this by mobbing up their animals into, um, you know, if a sheep and beef farmer goes from, you know, 10 different mobs down to two different mobs and they can get density to happen, they'll mimic nature and they'll fertilize as they go. And it takes a couple of years to get the soil biology up and running. And in the meantime, you don't wanna, you don't wanna give up your fertility program. I'd like to wrap up with our final question that we ask all of our guests what is it that you would say to any farmer that this is all very new to and perhaps they're curious but you know just sort of feeling their way and just starting their inquiry what would you say to those people I think the best thing they could do is to go visit farmers that are doing it but if you're a sheep and beef farmer or a dairy farmer you probably don't want to go to an arable farm to learn about regenerative because the um, you know the practices for arable farming, um, regenerative practices are different than from the pastoral farming. For people considering doing it, you know if you think you can or if you think you can't, you're correct. So you have to go and see farmers that are doing it and learn from their experiences and then ask yourself, well, what this farmer is doing, would that work on my farm or not? And, and until you decide it will work, there's no point in even trying it. Fantastic, Siobhan. There's some good advice. I've ever heard it. Thank you so much for your time this morning. And I look forward to seeing you out and about uh, all around the country doing all the excellent work that you're doing with Next Level Grazing. Thank you so much, Siobhan. Oh, thank you, Jano. This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share, and if you have any comments, questions or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. 
We'll see you then. <laughs>